Well, it's not going to be a surprise to anybody here to say uh, Joe and I are proud of our son and daughter-in-law and our two grandchildren here. We're also most appreciative of the way this church has stood behind our other two uh, children. Our oldest, Kathy, has been a missionary uh, with a military organization for many years, and you've supported Mark and Kathy, and we appreciate that. Our youngest is a missionary in uh, Turkey. She's been there for 15 years. She and her uh, husband are working in areas you'll find out more about in a couple weeks because they're going to be here, but uh, areas that are kind of scary, scary to me at least as a, uh, as a dad. But we appreciate the love and support that you've shown to all three of our children uh, over now these, uh, these many years. And I'm excited to be back. Uh, as uh, George indicated, it was 2006. In fact, it was June of 2006 uh, that I left Wayzata to begin this new adventure And so now it's been almost uh, 10 years to the day uh, that I'm back. Well, we're talking about faithfulness uh, today. One of the things that I have known in my own life, uh, if one wants to engender the quality of faithfulness on a personal level, you need to be accountable. So through the course of my ministry, I've always selected an accountability partner. Kevin Lakin was one of my accountability uh, partners here. A man by the name of Mike was an accountability partner of mine for three years. We got together every Saturday morning, and as I meet with my accountability partners, there are a number of questions we ask one another. Uh, Tell me what's been happening this last week in your marriage, in your family, where you work. Convince me that you've met Jesus somehow as you've prayed, as you've studied the Bible, as you've interacted with the world. Mike was uh, very special to me for lots of reasons because he had been a lead pastor at a church in California for many years, and so he understood my world in ways that maybe some of my other accountability partners couldn't. He also was uh, someone who enjoyed life. We played together, we prayed together, we even did a vacation uh, together. So you can imagine my shock one Saturday morning when Mike looked at me as we were talking about our families, and he said, George, I don't love Jan anymore. And I think I want to get a divorce. I, mean, I, was, I was shocked. Now, since uh, Mike had been a pastor, he knew all the pious platitudes we threw out in the church. He knew those verses that we readily quote when we hear a neighbor or friend or someone we love uh, is contemplating a decision that we know is not right. Uh, he knew about uh, everything works out for the good for those who love God. Uh, he could recite, uh, if God be for us, who or what can be against us? He knew all of that. Uh, But he looked at me and he said, George, what's wrong with me? I know getting a divorce would be wrong. I I know that God isn't supporting what I'm contemplating. I even expect, given my theology, there's a good chance that I might get judged for what I'm going to do. But I can't help myself. I just don't love Jan anymore. Uh, And George, I am tired of doing the right thing. Can you relate at all that? He said, I've been doing the right thing all my life, all my ministry, and I've come to the point where I just can't muster the strength to do the right thing anymore. What would you say to a friend like that? Or a family member who just made that kind of uh, pronouncement? Uh, As I thought, I realized that what Mike needed is what I couldn't give him. And I said, Mike, you need a touch of the Spirit of God in your life. Uh, You've tried doing it yourself. Uh, You've done your duty. Doing duty leads to legalism. Legalism leads to death, and that's what you've just experienced. So what I'm going to pray for you is that the Spirit of God somehow empower you with strength 
an ability that you don't have. That somehow, some way, that you're going to get an infusion of the might of God in your life, and you're going to be able to see that you can now do what you haven't been able to do. As uh, George uh, indicated, we're in this series on the fruit of the Spirit from Galatians 5.22. Faithfulness is the seventh of the nine fruit that are described in that passage. And anytime you see a word in the Bible, uh, it begs definition. Faithfulness uh, is what? Well, faithfulness is being full of faith. And then we can say, full of faith in what? And the right answer to any question asked in church, if you don't know, is Jesus. Yes, full of faith in Jesus. Or full of faith in Jesus' word and what he says, that what Jesus said is true, and we can count on it. I suggested to Mike that what he needed was what the Ephesian church needed. Uh, if you know anything about the book of Ephesians, maybe that was, uh, that was kind of a pejorative statement, wasn't it, George? Uh, as you understand what's in the book of Ephesians, uh, Ephesians is divided naturally into two sections. One, two, and three are the doctrinal portion of the book. Chapter 1 is about God the Father and what he did before the foundation of the world. And then it ends with this beautiful prayer where Paul prays that the eyes of the hearts of the Ephesians, now that tells us Paul thinks they're deluded, they don't know what's going on, that the eyes of the hearts of these Ephesians might be open so that they might see that God in heavenly places has hope and riches and incomparable power. Chapters 2 and 3 are his doctrine about Jesus Christ, especially Jesus Christ's ministry to the Gentiles and how Jesus Christ... Uh, in a powerful way, set Gentiles free. And then it ends with another prayer. And in this prayer, the Apostle Paul prays uh, for the church that they might have strength, that they might understand love, and they might experience the fullness of God. Uh, You look at all of this in the light of what's going on at the book of Ephesians, and they might wonder why Paul prays those two prayers. Because chapters 4, 5, and 6 are the practical portion of the book. And as we look at this practical portion, we find out in chapter 4, down through verse 16, this was a weak church struggling with one another. In verses 17 through 32 of chapter 4, we find out they had weak relationships. They were even stealing from one another in church. In chapter 5, 1 through 17, we find out uh, they had a weak walk. They were caught up in sex, in greed, and money. You say, well, thank God that doesn't happen in America today. Uh, chapter 5, 18 and following, they were in weak marriages. Husbands weren't loving their wives. Wives weren't respecting their husbands. And chapter 6, uh, uh, first part of chapter 6, we find out fathers were angering their children, and children were not respecting their parents, so they had weak families. And then where they showed up for work, uh, workers were not respecting their bosses, and bosses were not respecting their workers, and so they had a work-job environment. This was a church that was as stuck as any church described for us in the New Testament. And to this stuck church, stuck in every phase of their life, the Apostle Paul says, your biggest problem is you're deluded. You don't understand God. And that's why I'm going to be spending my time talking about who God the Father is and who God the Son is. And that's why when I'm praying for you, I'm going to be praying that the eyes of your heart might be open so that you can see the truth. That in heavenly places for stuck people in a stuck church, God has hope, he has riches, and he has incomparable power available to us. You just need to claim it. 
We're going to be looking at one of these two prayers this morning. But before we look at any uh, prayer in Scripture, there needs to be something else, I think, that needs to be said. It matters what you pray. Tim LaHaye is known to us as the man who wrote the Left Behind series. He also wrote a book, How to Overcome Depression. In that book, he cites an example of researchers who are conducting research on depression and what really works. And they divided the group that they were studying into three separate groups. Uh, Group A met with effective counselors who taught them techniques in dealing with depression. Group B met with individuals who knew how to pray biblically and taught these folks how to pray biblically. Group C were told, you go home and pray. Several months later, the researchers met with these three groups and discovered in the first group, 50% who met with effective counselors had seen marked improvement. Of those who were taught to pray biblically, 85% saw marked improvement. Of those that were told, go home and pray, not one of them had improved, and most of them actually got worse. I'm curious about that. Uh, They did some more research to find out what was the problem with group C? How could they have gotten worse when they were actually praying? And what they discovered is as these folks were praying, they were filled with self-pity. Oh, God, help my marriage. My spouse is no good. Help my job. You know, Jim at work is driving me nuts. You know, help the church because the church is messed up. That's what their focus was. They were victims. They were complaining about what was wrong in their life. And for that very reason, as they prayed, they got more depressed. So Paul says, when you pray... Uh, What I want you to pray, especially if you're feeling stuck in some way, pray that the eyes of your heart might be open so that you can get out of the self-delusion that pervades the church of Jesus Christ. And you can see that there's a place to look for hope. It's in heaven. There's a place to look for riches. It's in heaven. Uh, There's a place to experience power, the incomparable power of God, and it is in heaven. And the Apostle Paul in this uh, second prayer, the one we are going to examine, tells us we should be praying for strength, Uh, We should be praying for love, and we should be praying for the fullness of God. So turn with me to Ephesians uh, chapter 3 as we examine uh, this uh, second great prayer of the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 3. We'll begin in verse 14. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man so that Christ might dwell in your hearts through faith. So picking up the theme of his first prayer, that Paul is saying to this stuck church, you need some power that you obviously don't have, just looking at uh, the practical application from uh, your lives. And so that's what I'm going to pray. I'm going to pray that you get this power, that you be strengthened in the inner man with power that Christ might dwell in your hearts. You look at that last phrase, and it begs another theological comment. The audience uh, for the book of Ephesus was Ephesian saints. If you're a saint, and you know Jesus Christ is your personal Savior, is it not true that Christ is already in your heart? So when Paul prays that it is his prayer that Christ might dwell in the heart of these Christians, what is he praying Well, we can answer the question in part by looking at the verb that Paul chooses to use here. Uh, The word that is translated dwell means to take up full residence. Uh, It is Jesus Christ occupying 
every part of your heart, every part of your life, or in terminology some of you heard, being fully surrendered to Jesus Christ. And we know it's possible not to be fully surrendered. Uh, In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul talks about carnal Christians. Carnal Christians whose works are wood, hay, and stubble, they're going to be burned up at the last day, but these carnal Christians, nonetheless, are still going to heaven. But they're not fully living uh, for Jesus Christ. So it's possible to live our lives in such a way that we give God little compartments of our life. You know, you can rule here, Jesus, but not everywhere uh, is certainly the idea. And as we look at these Christians, we can say, well, God was not ruling in this church. God was not ruling in their marriages. God was not ruling where they worked. Uh, God God was not ruling in their families. Uh, And so this was a church that truly did need to be strengthened in the inner man that Christ might take up full residence. And alas, uh, this was a, a church that suffered from the theological dilemma that Rabbi Kushner talks about. Rabbi Kushner wrote the book, uh, Why Do Bad Things Happen to Good People? Maybe you're familiar with the book. Uh, and his conclusion in the book is, our God is an incredible, loving, gracious, merciful God. But as it relates to the problem of suffering, he's impotent. He doesn't have the power to do anything for you. Uh, as uh, George mentioned over these last several years, uh, we have been developing products uh, that are based upon research on best practices uh, for marriage and family. Uh, and what we have seen as we've had the opportunity uh, to go many places around the world and across the United States is if there is a difficulty with marriage today in the church, the difficulty is stated in Rabbi Kushner's theology. We believe God is a loving God. He's a gracious God. He's a merciful God, but he's impotent. And that's why I'm going to do this wrong thing that I'm contemplating doing because I believe that God is such a loving God, he's going to have to forgive me for what I'm going to do. And I've actually had people tell me that. God will have to forgive me for what I'm about to do because he's a loving, gracious God. And I can say he's a loving, gracious God, uh, but today we're reminding ourselves he's a faithful God, faithful to his word, faithful to his power, faithful to his commitment to marriage. And it seems to me that in the church of Jesus Christ, we have lost sight of that. We know he's loving. We're not quite so sure uh, that he's faithful. If his faithfulness means uh, we are supposed to experience some kind of power and might in our lives. It was a few years ago, one of my associates and I were counseling a soldier uh, who was in England. Uh, He was a part of Campus Crusade, military staff, but he was a soldier, uh, an officer within the military. Uh, He'd been married for 20 years. He had three wonderful children. He was a pillar in his church, obviously a pillar with military uh, ministry. The reason why we were visiting with them is that in the course of his experience as a soldier in England, he had gotten involved in a friendship uh, with a female officer. Uh, And beware. Uh, The way that the enemy brings temptation into our life is that we're going to meet somebody invariably at some time who becomes a friend. And it's innocent enough. Then we're going to find with that friend, we can talk to that friend in ways we can't talk to our spouse, which isn't quite so innocent anymore, but we're not likely to see that. Then we keep talking to this friend, and we bear our soul with this friend. We share our life with this friend, and we find out this friend gives us better advice than our spouse. In Genesis uh, chapter 2.18, God says it's his purpose for marriage that man not be alone. So your spouse is to be your best friend. Well, now somebody else has become your best friend. And Genesis 2.18 says, 
uh, that is God's design for marriage, that the person that you meet uh, is supposed to be one who effectively meets your needs. For this, uh, it's uh, 218. It's not good for man to be alone. I'll make a helpmate. Helpmate is the word I'm talking about. Uh, the word helpmate is the Hebrew word etzer. We see it in Ebenezer. Uh, this word etzer means help. And throughout Hebrew scripture, it describes the way that God helps man primarily to grow emotionally and spiritually and physically. So what's supposed to happen in marriage is that you meet somebody who helps you grow emotionally and physically and spiritually, and you do that for them too. But invariably, as relationships occur, we see somebody else takes the place of your best friend. Somebody else is now the person who's helping you grow, and it's not your spouse, and then the next thing you know, you can skip right down to verse 25 of Genesis 2, and you're naked and you're not ashamed. Well, this man developed this inappropriate relationship with a fellow officer. Uh, it, it was innocent enough to start with, but he blew past all the warning signs. And his wife found out. As soon as she found out, he told his wife, well, I'll cut off the relationship. I know it's wrong. I'll end it right now. But she also knew he was about to be deployed to East Africa for six months. And her thought was, okay, he's had a little trouble with internet pornography. He's now had this affair. He's going to be gone for six months. The family's not going to be around. The church is not going to be around. How can I ever trust this man again? And that was her question to me. And what I'll say to folks, we can forgive anybody, anything. But trusting them again is nothing altogether because trust is built over time. It's built upon shared experiences and relationships. And if he's gone for six months, how does that trust develop? And particularly if he's gone to East Africa, where the only way they can communicate is by email. That's it. What in the world are they going to do? So I have to admit, as I'm uh, talking to this uh, couple as the lead counselor in this situation, I said to them out loud what I'm not afraid to say in settings like this. I'm stuck. I don't know what to tell you. But I do know this. As I read the book of Ephesians, God is faithful. And God tells those of us who are stuck, those of us who don't know what to do, uh, that our prayer should be that God would open up the eyes of our heart so we can see what we're not seeing. That he'd open the eyes of our heart so we can see that in heavenly places, God is the one that can give me the hope I don't have. God, God is the one that can give me the riches I don't possess. God is the one who has this incomparably great power that he's going to make available to me when I'm stuck, and I don't know where that's coming from. So the best technique we use in our ministry is to tell people exactly this. You're stuck right now. I'm stuck. But God is never, ever stuck. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to pray that our creative God, who has creative power today, will show you something, will demonstrate his power in such a way that you know he is for you. He is faithful. He's going to stand by his word. He's going to stand by your marriage somehow. I don't know how he's going to do that, but I trust that God will. Well, the husband was deployed uh, to East Djibouti, East Africa is where he went. And the next time we got a chance to talk, I said, so uh, has God done anything? And of course, this poor guy, you know, he, he apologized, I don't know how many times. And every time, you know, he apologized, she'd ask him how she can trust him. And then he would just go right down in a dumpster again emotionally uh, and didn't know what to do. And as he clammed up, that made her less trusting and less hopeful. So it wasn't looking good as uh, he went off on his deployment. But anyway, I asked the question, so has God shown you anything? It was the wife who spoke up. Now, I don't know if you've had family members where somebody has cheated on somebody else uh, and you're dealing with the individual who has been cheated on, the, the innocent one, 
Normally, there's a lot of hurt and pain. What I'll tell folks is that if your spouse has cheated on you, the pain that you experience is worse than if they have died. Now, that's a Kenworthyism. That's not in the Bible, so you don't have to... Well, you can quote me on that. I said that, didn't I? But uh, I, I, it's been my... It's a spiritual argument is what I'm trying to say. Uh, but I, I do see that kind of pain. So this is the gal who had been cheated on, who told me what God led her to do was write an email every single day. And in that email, she reminded her now depressed husband of the good moments in their marriage, like the day of their first kiss. And, and she showed me what, they, what she wrote. And she described the weather that day. She described what he was wearing, what she was wearing, uh, where they were when they exchanged his first kiss. I mean, she created such an incredible picture. They both were able to put themselves back into that picture emotionally and feel those original feelings. And then in another email, she reminded them of the day they brought their first child home from the hospital what he was wearing, what she was wearing, what the temperature was, what the baby was wearing, all the incidents so that, again, they could put themselves right back into that scene and feel the flood of those same warm emotions that they had felt that very day. Now, I've dealt with lots of marriages where somebody has cheated on somebody else. And normally, if I'm sitting down with a wife or a husband whose spouse has just cheated on them, if I would say, say well, here's the plan. This is what you need to do. You didn't write love letters every day to this person who cheated on you. They'd look at me like I was nuts or something. But this is what God showed this woman to do. It was my suggestion, and it saved their marriage. I, I see, and we got hundreds of these kinds of stories in our, our ministry. I see those kinds of things. It's like you got a ringside seat to the power of God, and I find myself invariably saying, I'm the one that's deluded. Because I'd given up on this couple. I wasn't sure where to go. I admitted that I was stuck. And then, God, you intervened. You opened my eyes, opened their eyes, to the fact that you do have hope, and you've got riches, and you've got incomparable power in heavenly places. God, teach me to believe that you are faithful. So Paul says, I'm going to pray for strength. He continues on and lets them know he's going to pray for love. So back to the book of Ephesians, to our text. And you see in the middle of uh, verse 17 that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge. Oh, we can look at this and say, so why would Paul want to address this church on the subject of love? Well, read the book. This was a church that was a weak church and weak relationships. They're stealing from one another. Uh, this was a, a church that had a weak walk, a church that had weak marriages. People, husbands weren't loving their wives, wives not respecting their husbands. Uh, kids were not respecting parents. Dads were angering their children, and they were weak on the job. So, I mean, no kidding they needed to know something about love. And this was a church, according to our first prayer, that was deluding themselves. They thought they knew what they were doing, and they didn't. And so Paul is praying, you need to have your eyes opened to see the truth about what's going on. And I'm going to pray that you get to the point where you can comprehend this real love of God in its height and depth and breadth and width, because you're not getting it right now. Uh, It was uh, years ago. Son George was nine years old. Even then, he was sharp, quick-witted and one I expected to be a tremendous asset to the sermon I was going to be preaching the next Sunday. I was preaching on the subject of love, 
uh, any effective communicator knows when you're talking about abstract concepts, it's important to come down the abstraction ladder and be able to paint a picture so people can see it and they can feel it and they can touch it. Uh, and so I thought what I would do uh, on the subject of love, I would share with the church the wonderful love that was expressed in the Kenworthy home. And so I went to George, you know, some of the young people won't know this, but if you look at ancient archives, uh, we used to have tape recorders that had a play button and a record button and a little microphone you, uh, you hold out. So I went to George, one of those, I wanted this to be a spontaneous moment. I don't want to miss one of the wonderful things he's going to share. So I hit the play button, the record button, I had in front of uh, George's uh, face. He says, so George, how do you know that I love you, son? And I'm thinking this is going to be great. George is so quick-witted. He's, he's so wonderful. He's going to see something fabulous that's really going to help the church. Well, George didn't hesitate. He said, Dad, I don't know that you love me at all. <laughs> what? And I thought to myself, how could this boy that I love with all my heart possibly say he hasn't any clue that I love him at all? Now, I turned the tape recorder off and said to myself, I can't play this on Sunday morning. <laughs> And then I had a worse thought than that. I thought to myself, if my son, who I assume, knows the incredible love that I have for him, and I'm going to use this exchange as, as a testimony to the church, what would happen if I asked my two daughters or my wife the same question? And I concluded, I'm not going to risk that. <laughs> Valentine's Day was approaching, so I decided what I would do instead... Uh, is that I would ask every member of the family uh, to write a note to me and describe how I could love them in the next year in a way that would actually feel like love to them. I thought, obviously I'm clueless. You talk about somebody who's deluded. I'm totally deluded when it comes to the subject of love and family. So maybe if they can give me some action steps, you know, how I can love them the way it feels like love, well, then maybe they're going to start feeling some love. Every member of the family participated. Then I can just say as a footnote, uh, we've been doing that now since George was nine. And every Father's Day, every Christmas, every birthday, every Easter, anytime there's an occasion uh, for me to get a card for my kids, they write, let me know how they know I love them. Okay? It's a wonderful thing, cause, especially for the guy who was so self-deluded and stupid you know, uh, earlier in life. But, but in any case, uh, we did this as a family. I remember well the letter I got from my dear wife, Joan. Joan said, the way that you can show me that you love me more this next year is by saying the words, I love you more. I thought, okay, I can do that. I've even read Chapman's book. I know all about love languages. Uh, this is obviously in the category of words of affirmation. And I can do this. So for the next year, I bent over backwards to tell Joan, I love you. Knowing this is in the category of words of affirmation, I let her know how amazing her meal was, how incredible she looked. I even told her that this morning, right? <laughs> Get brownie points wherever you can. Um, so I was doing a great job. And, and to continue my education, I decided the next Valentine's Day, we'd write new letters. Because now that I've mastered uh, the first part of this, I'm ready to step out you know, to the advanced level, loving in the family. So I, I said, I want you all to write a letter to me and tell me now what I can add to what I've already accomplished. Because, I mean, I had aced the first part of this exam. You already know what's coming, don't you? So I, I get the, the letter back from my wife, and, and, I, and I need to point out here that during the course of that last year, I even was keeping track of how many times I said I love you to her and, and what I wasn't getting back, just, just so you know how well I was doing. 
Well, I get the love letter from my wife saying, how can I love you more in the next year? And she had the audacity to say, the way you can show me that you love me more is by saying the words, I love you. It's like, what? My first reaction was, what's the matter with this woman? My, my second reaction was, well, it's hopeless. Man, I gave this my best shot. And I was bending over backwards to do everything I possibly could to let this woman know. I mean, I, I, I did everything that was listed in Chapman's book. I mean, what more can you do? Thankfully, John wasn't in or around while I'm having these thoughts. And in the uh, quietness of my reflection, the Spirit of God prompted me. And, and I trust there are times where God prompts you with a verse of Scripture or something he's convicting you about, and he's just, just needling in. And then, you know, God was oppressing upon me and saying, why did we start this exercise? Well, Lord, it was because members of my family didn't know that I loved them in a way that felt like love. Well, then, George, what do you need to do? It's like, oh, not that, Lord. (laughs) What do you need to do? Well, I guess, Lord, I'm going to have to trust you, because I gave it my best effort. I'm going to have to trust you to give me the ability to do this better. And as I said, the the footnote to that is that we now have a family uh, that regularly has exchanges where we're writing to one another, Uh, how we are proud of one another, how we love one another, how uh, we've experienced the love of God. We've got family members that are taking this beyond what John and I have ever done. I mean, it's like 40 days of love. You know, uh, this is part of the Wilson Exchange. For 40 days, you get love letters up up leading up to your your birthday. It's like, well, that's kind of cool. But the point is, uh, we can live in such a way with the people we say we care about the most, claiming that we love them and be deluded. So Paul says, here's what I'm going to be praying for you when you're stuck. I'm going to be praying that you get what love really is, that you understand it in its height and its depth and its breadth and its width, that you can comprehend what Jesus Christ is really all about and what it, he has made it possible for you to be about. So here's a practical suggestion for you. We've uh, suggested family has been doing this for years. Just try this this week. Sit down with your family, do the whole family, and ask this question. How have you felt loved by me this last week. You'll be amazed by what you hear. Some of what you hear is going to surprise you because it's not what you might have thought. Hopefully you hear something <laughs> uh, that they, they, they say. Uh, and then the second thing I would suggest that you do uh, in this exercise uh, is uh, ask one another how you can pray for each other to grow. There are two reasons why marriages and families are stuck today. Uh, we're, we're stuck because uh, we don't know how to love one another or don't feel loved by one another, if we can get that part figured out so that we can say, I have a spouse who loves me. I know they do because we're doing this kind of exercise. We're reminding ourselves of the practical ways in which we're showing love. Second reason why families and marriages are stuck is because they're hopeless. I'm married to somebody who's never, ever going to change. Well, that's not true if you're meeting with them on a regular basis and they're asking you to pray for change in their life and you're praying with the expectation that God is going to help them change. So we tell folks, try that. It'll now divorce-proof your marriage, and if we can use this terminology, divorce-proof your family. Paul praying to the stuck church that was deluded, didn't understand what was going on, that didn't know anything about God's faithfulness apparently, said, I'm going to pray for strength for you. I'm going to pray for love for you. And then finally in verse 19, He says, I'm going to pray for fullness, that you may be filled up to the fullness of God. This is a familiar theme in the book of Ephesians, uh, because in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 30, 
the Apostle Paul urges this church not to grieve the Spirit of God. And if you look at verse 31, turn in your Bibles with me to 431. Notice how this is kind of the anti-list of the fruit of the Spirit. Uh, So this is how we grieve the Spirit of God, verse 31 of, of chapter 4. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. You look at the fruit of the Spirit and compare it to this list, it's kind of the opposite of everything that might be in the fruit of the Spirit. Practically, what does this mean? If you're feeling like a victim and you're carrying a burden and you know you're carrying a burden because of some relationship because you're hurt regularly and you'll even use the word hurt, what that suggests to you, that's proof positive, you haven't been set free with the power of forgiveness. Uh, Because as you're walking around feeling like some sort of victim and there's that pain that you regularly feel, uh, it's an indication that there is bitterness. And you say, oh, it's not bitterness, I'm just hurt. It's basically the same thing. And the Bible says you can get set free from that. You can get your joy back. You can get your peace back. Uh, But you got to pray what God asks you to pray. And the last thing in this list is pray for fullness. If you have the fruit of the Spirit in your life, you're not going to have this bitterness. You're not going to have this wrath. You're not going to have this anger. You're not going to have this ache in your gut feeling like it's hopeless. And where am I going to go with all of this? So Paul says, I'm praying for you that you might experience the fullness of God. It was uh, many years ago, as I was pastoring on another church, a couple came to me for absolution. I believe that's what they were looking for. It's like, Pastor, we're getting a divorce. Just thought you should know. Uh, As they came in to see me, uh, they announced in the first few moments uh, that they'd both been to two uh, counselors, both PhDs, and both of them advised them to get a divorce. And they just thought I should know. Uh, So I asked them, uh, what is the uh, subtitle to uh, our most recent book, Before the Last Resort, Three Simple Questions That'll Rescue Your Marriage? Question number one is, do you believe that God is a creator God who has creative solutions to your problem? If you're stuck, he's not stuck. Do you believe that? Question number two, are you willing to apply the principles of the Bible to your life and to your marriage? Yes or no? They both said yes to the first two questions. And the third question is, are you willing to pray that the Spirit of God give you uh, the hope and the riches and the incomparable power the Bible says is available to us in the church? Will you pray for that or not? They both said yes. So I looked back on this couple and said to them what I've sent to countless couples since. Well, based on your answer to those three questions, I will absolutely, positively guarantee God's going to save your marriage. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. I've heard, I've heard those questions before. How in the world can you possibly say that, George? Well, let's check. Book of Malachi says God hates divorce. Matthew 19, Jesus Christ, God's own son, says, What God has joined together, let no man put asunder. Last time I checked, book of James says, You don't know what God's will is for your business. You can move to a certain town. You don't have to make any money. Don't say that's the will of God. But it is the will of God for marriages to stay together. Now, I know not every marriage stays together, but the marriages of folks who say, I believe God's a creator of God, and I'm not stuck. And I'm ready to follow the Bible, whatever it says, wherever it takes me, uh, and I'm willing to pray that the Spirit of God give me the riches and hope and power I don't have, those marriages get saved. I believe that with all my heart. So that's what I told this couple. I, I believe that. Well, I was their pastor, and <clears throat> they decided, okay, we'll give it a shot. We met for nine months. I gave them all my best stuff. We did conflict resolution tools. We did communication date tools. We looked at family backgrounds. I gave them diagnostic tests. I mean, I was given the best of everything I had. 
After nine months, it was obvious the one thing they didn't have was the touch of the Spirit of God. And I, and I do say this in the first session. What I'll tell folks as we're working together uh, is that I can give you a bunch of tools. I, I know the secular tools. I know the Christian tools. and I can give you all those tools. But what it's really going to take, if you're really stuck, is the touch of the Spirit of God. I can't give you that. I can pray for that. Uh, we'll all know when it happens that Spirit of God has somehow engaged you and touched you and you're not stuck anymore. Uh, but we'll have to wait for the Spirit of God to do that. So in the meantime, we'll do all this techniques and tactics stuff. So we were doing that. After nine months, admittedly, it wasn't getting any better. So I looked at this couple and I said, uh, maybe the best thing for you is just, why don't you go to Florida? Get, get away, because she was still seeing the guy who was next door, the next door neighbor. Uh, you know, get away from this guy. You get off by yourself. Allow the Spirit of God to do what the Spirit of God and do. See what happens. Well, they came back from their trip to Florida. The wife called me and she said, George, Florida was awful. I filed for divorce. I'm done. About 15 minutes later, he called and said, George, I don't know what I was thinking. She's been seeing this guy all through our counseling, hasn't given him up, and I'm tired of the abuse. Florida was terrible. I've already called a lawyer. I'm filing for divorce. Now, in, in that moment, my heart sank because I, I am an eternal optimist, and I think I have good reason to be because I serve a faithful God. But at that moment, my heart sank, and I uttered one last prayer. Lord, I know that you're faithful. I know that you hate divorce. I know that it's going to take a touch of the Spirit of God. So God, somehow, some way, would you touch one of these couples? And then I waited. It was not 30 minutes later. The wife called me. She said she was driving around the town where we lived, and she saw a billboard uh, that had on it something like 474 Pray. She went home and turned on the TV, saw that same billboard. So she went over to her telephone, dialed that number, talked to a prayer counselor for 10 minutes. Now, I've been counseling for nine months. <laughs> talks to a prayer counselor for 10 minutes. And she hears the voice of God and tells me, God wants to save my marriage. Now, I'm thinking, oh, we should start billboard evangelism, billboard counseling. I mean, I just whatever. Uh, and she said, well, what do you think? And I said, this is what we've been praying for for nine months now. This is fantastic. How can I help? And she said, well, I, I think I need to tell my boyfriend I'm moving out of the apartment that he's rented for me. Yeah, I'd agree with that. Would you be there? So that evening, I met her at the apartment. We had a time of prayer together. The boyfriend then showed up, saw me there, came into the room, came right up to this gal, gave her a big hug, said, I love you. And she said, I love you, but I've heard the voice of God today. And God wants me to save my marriage. I know he had no clue what she was talking about. He left. We had another time of prayer rejoicing. And from that moment on, there was no turning back for her. I mean, we had more work to do, uh, but now we're heading downhill. God saved that marriage. It was over 20 years ago. In fact, members of the staff, some of you may have even heard me share this story here. Uh, she came to church here once. I introduced her to the staff, said, this is the billboard lady. Remember me talking about her? And then she came into my office. Uh, we sat down. She was holding her newborn. And I, I shared with her, I've been telling your story, such a cool story, what God can do when we allow God to be God in our lives. What do you tell folks? And now tears are streaming down her face as she says, what I tell folks is that my marriage is a miracle to the faithfulness of God. And I say, yep, that's what I would say too, absolutely. 
I wish that every time I prayed for somebody, it was just like that. You know, Spirit of God would be engaged. Things would turn around. I know God is faithful. With my friend Mike, I prayed for years. And I actually got angry at God. It's like, God, this isn't right. I pray for all these other folks. I see wonderful things happening. But for the man I care about more than anybody else, he was my best friend at the time. You're doing nothing. And, and God, I know you can. You stopped the Apostle Paul dead in his tracks on the Damascus Road when he wasn't looking for you. You got Nebuchadnezzar's attention when he wasn't looking for you. You can do something in my friend's life. Why don't you do it? And this is one of the great puzzles to me. I've seen God do some amazing things uh, in individual lives. I've got lots of stories how God intervened when it looked like it was hopeless. I also can say, I don't, I don't know yet how for sure God is doing all this. Because there's some people look about as hardened as they can possibly be, and God will intervene. In other situations, it looks like, well, this should be easy, Lord. And then it seems like it takes forever, or sometimes they just go ahead and get a divorce, and nothing happens. Well, I had that same kind of struggle with my friend Mike, and I even uh, was the one that mediated uh, his divorce. You know, Jan gets this, and you get that, and this is how this is going to work out. It's one of the most painful things I've ever done in my life. And then it was after several years, he moved out to be closer to his boys. And as he's going over to see the boys, he starts being friendly to his wife. Uh, Then they got friendlier. Then they became best friends. And then they got remarried. And you think, well, God, thank you for that. Uh, Because it uh, proved to me what I know to be true, but sometimes don't believe our God is faithful. He has hope and riches, and incomparably great power in heavenly places available to any of us in the church that are stuck. Maybe today you're not stuck in your marriage. Maybe you're stuck where you work. Maybe you're stuck in some relationship. Maybe you're stuck someplace else. But I want to assure you today on the basis of God's holy word that God is never, ever stuck. So if you're stuck today, here's what you do. You pray for strength, you pray for love, you pray that you might experience the fullness of God. And then you can sing this doxology, one of the greatest doxologies written in the New Testament, found at the end of our text, and now perhaps you can appreciate this doxology even more, having looked more closely at uh, what precedes it. But the doxology beginning with verse 20 of chapter 3. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly, beyond all we ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. God is faithful. Do you believe that today? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you that you are faithful to your word to perform it. God, we readily admit that there are many times we're stuck. I mean, I know I'm stuck on so many occasions. But God, we're thankful that you are never, ever stuck. And so, God, we would pray that you'll help us uh, to deal with those areas of self-delusion that seem to pervade us on so many occasions. That the eyes of our heart might be open to be able to see the hope and riches and incomparable power you have available to us. God, we pray that you'll strengthen us in the inner man. Uh, that you'll show us what real love is practically so that we might demonstrate it to our family and friends and people in the church. And then, God, keep us from quenching the Spirit of God. May the fruit of the Spirit permeate our lives. May they be reflected in what we say and what we do for Jesus' sake. Amen.